it in that file, whatever. So I've I've had collected stats on on gambling, both from what the Bible says about it and what is going on. Of course, you can't collect everything about it, or you would you'd need a whole file drawer just to hold it all of what has gone on. But I think it's an important thing for us to think about in one class because our world is full of this, and of course our our country right now. Uh, matter of fact, we're at the point now where we rely as income on our in our states and the rest on gambling, and it's an amazing thing that has happened. So uh, I thought that I, I would uh, give you a few statistics first. Some of these are oh, 10 or so more years old uh, because I've collected them over the years. Um, you know, one story, maybe maybe you've done things like this. Uh, you know, we were in Colorado for a number of years, and uh, we had been in Southern California before that. So we still had a lot of contacts in Southern California when we moved to Colorado in, uh, in 1981. And, uh, you know, it's only, it's, it's a day's drive from Denver back to L.A. It's not bad. You can go a couple different routes. And so uh, we made that trip a few times. And uh, actually, uh, uh, the fellow who was my associate pastor, maybe another man or so in the church, we would go back for these meetings and all. So we did that one year. We were, we were going driving back to L.A., and we took the northern route, which means I-70 out to cross Utah, where my dad said, I don't know why we fought the Indians over Utah. You know, when you see that state, it's just... It's just blank, you know, but uh, beautiful in its own right, too. But then you, you hit I-15, and you, you take that south toward L.A. Well, you go through Las Vegas, you know. And uh, I remember as a kid seeing Las Vegas once when we were on vacation out west, you know, and, and uh, being amazed at the lights, you know, out in a desert valley, as a matter of fact, in that time when I was a kid, we were going to camp out at Lake Mead, I think it was, and the campground was closed, and so we had to head toward Las Vegas, and we came up over this ridge at midnight or whatever it was. And you're out in the desert. You haven't seen a light, you know, in a thousand miles. And you come over this hill, and, and the world is light, you know. And that was in the 60s, you know. But this other trip, we, we were coming through, and uh, I guess we're just naive because you see these advertisements, you know, breakfast for 49 cents or something, you know, at such and such casino. That's the thing. You have to drive to that building. So, uh, you know, when you go through on I-15, the, the major part of the city is to the east of the highway and then a lot of residential stuff to the west. So, uh, you know, three guys in the car, we're hungry, we, you know, we, and I think it was breakfast time. We had traveled, we'd been driving all night. So it was breakfast. And, you know, they're talking about breakfast for 49 cents. Sounds good to us, you know, or some buffet. So we, we go there. And we ate breakfast for that cheap price, and then we left. But, but in order to get to the buffet, you have to walk in the casino, you know, or I don't know, wherever that entrance. It wasn't at one of those big entrances, but wherever it was to the restaurant. But, you know, that was enough for me. It, you know, you see that much of that world and that life, and you say, good grief, you know. And 
and this would have been, you know, 7 a.m. in the morning or something like that, and probably people had been there all night. So, uh, so my rule from then on when we, when we traveled to L.A. was I, if I stop in Las Vegas, it will be on the west side of the highway. I'm not, I'm not even going to go to the east side. Now, when we lived out in L.A., I spoke for a pastor who pastored a fundamental Baptist church in Las Vegas and uh, went up and preached for him once. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for those guys who, who can do it, who, who live out in the desert and, I mean, can try to minister in a city like that. It must be hard. Uh, but anyway, just, you know, my small recollections of the gambling world, which I know very little about otherwise, but uh, just a few things. You know, um, William Penn, when he, when he founded what we call Pennsylvania, established it as a community where government would be a force in moral improvement. <laughs> government would be a force in moral improvement. I think we've forgotten what William Penn said by now. Um, it was in 1931 that a, a casino was, was first legalized in Nevada, 1931. And that was because what was called the Comstock load had petered out, was gone, and, and they needed an, a business in Nevada. So 1931, they did that. As late as 1955, prof professional baseball players, if you were employed by a team, were, were not allowed to stay overnight in Las Vegas. Can you imagine doing that today, <laughs> having a rule like that for, for professional ball players today? You are not allowed to stay overnight. It was in 1964 that New Hampshire started the first state lottery, just in 1964. So I'm thinking, you know, as a kid growing up, most of us in this room growing up, we never knew about these things. You know, when we were kids, well, there was Las Vegas, but it wasn't very big. Uh, and the rest, but we didn't know about lotteries and, you know, and getting tickets and so forth that way. Uh, it was in uh, uh, 1991, as late as 1991, that Davenport, Iowa established the first riverboat that was a gambling casino, of course, in 91, called uh, the Diamond Lady. So good old Iowa, Midwest, you know, Values and all the rest had the first riverboat casino, and of course now they're everywhere. Um, I guess you still have to have them on water, isn't that right? So you you see you see some big building looking like a you don't have to do that uh, looking like a boat, and they put a moat around it so they can say it's on the water or something. I don't know, but nowadays because most states legalize gambling anyway, you don't have to have it on a river somewhere. You can have it anywhere. I suppose that's true. Um, in uh, as early then as, as 93, uh, people lost $1.5 billion, billion on riverboat gambling in the United States. That has gone up 
Wow. And so uh, the first one, uh, you know, the first one was in 91. By 1994, there were 22 riverboats in Mississippi alone, gambling riverboats in Mississippi alone. I mean, it escalated that quickly because people wanted to do it. And so uh, in, in 94, people had lost $35 billion in legal gambling. And listen to this. More than what is spent on movies, sports, concerts, cruises, videos, and resorts combined. Isn't that amazing? What's spent on gambling in this, in this country. And um, from 1976, when wagering on things was allowed, um, by 1992, $330 billion were wagered on things. That was an increase of 1,800% from when wagering started. A slot machine costs $5,000 if, if a casino buys one, costs $5,000, and that is recouped on one slot machine in 20 days. <laughs> Buy nickels and quarters, I don't know, whatever now you put in them. And, uh, you know, H&R Block for years has given uh, refund anticipation loans <laughs> for so that you can gamble, you know, in casinos on uh, what you're going to get in your refund. And so, um, since, since 2000, uh, the year 2000, uh, every American in the United States lives within a four-hour drive of some casino where they can gamble. So every, everyone in the United States has access to it uh, that quickly. When they were built the, in Las Vegas, the Lexor cost $375 million, the uh, Treasure Island $475 million, the MGM $1 billion. And, of course, they tear those down and build new ones, uh, you know, that cost much, much more than that. So things are changing uh, pretty quickly. Uh, some years ago... Uh, <laughs> You know the name Howard Stern, don't you? He makes a little bit of money on this kind of thing. And uh, he was asked if, if athletes have, have a, had a problem gambling. And uh, uh, he said, uh, no. He said, as a matter of fact, this a few years ago, go to casinos. Go to Indian reservations for gambling. Go to riverboats. Bet lots. Gambling is good. It supports higher education, lower education, senior citizens, you name it. As the states rush uh, into attempts to raise new money, there seems to be a campaign encouraging gambling. Howard Stern says this. This was interesting. In, there was a man named Joseph Napolitan who, way back in 1976, uh, because he is a, a political consultant of some type, uh, helped legalize uh, gambling in Atlantic City, New Jersey, out on the East Coast. So years later, in uh, uh, I think this was the Atlantic uh, magazine, this same fellow who did this 
said that this was one of the this was the worst mistake of his entire career. And here's the magazine says why. He gave these statistics. Uh, Atlantic City started with one casino, now has multiple. Within three years of when it was established, the city's crime rate tripled, going from 50th in the nation per capita to first. 40% of local res restaurants closed. The number of homeless people increased by 2,000%. Property values dropped. Almost 200 homes of people who refused to sell their property to casinos were destroyed in arson-related fires. And more people went on welfare and the shelters were jammed. He said, uh, today Atlantic City has two distinct cities, tourists, See the glittering hotels, fancy entertainment, inexpensive meals, which keep them from leaving the casino, but a few blocks away is the Atlantic City of those who live there, seedy, dirty, and dangerous. Quite, a bit, quite a bit, an admission from someone who helped legalize it in that very city. And of course, that has happened uh, to pe more people. Well, you know, I... I have kind of found in my time in ministry and speaking that uh, when I use gambling uh, or lottery or something like that as a sermon illustration or, or, or whatever, uh, it doesn't always go over well. <laughs> and why is that? I think because, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, people like to play at it and the rest. And, and there's even... As some people say, a silence of biblical literature, writings, articles, and things like that from writers because there seems to be a real pushback even from Christian people about saying anything about gambling. Gambling seems to be one of those things where, well, where's the chapter and verse that says, thou shalt not gamble? I'll come to some, I think, biblical principles here in a minute. But uh, some years ago, I did have... In the Baptist Bulletin, which is the national paper of the GRBC, uh, I get that. I would recommend it to you, too. I still get it. Uh, a pastor named Rex Rogers uh, lives in Arlington. Uh, he did an article on gambling, and he, he uh, focused on these six things. It violates biblical stewardship. Uh, it uh, encourages chasing fantasies in life. Worldly allurements tempt us to sin. It subverts the sovereign gift of reason. And it is potentially addictive. And it is a bottomless pit. You can't stop doing it. I don't know if you've heard testimonies of people who are addicted to gambling. Uh, you know, I, I've heard those or, or someone who tried to overcome that addiction or whatever. And, and it is something. I mean, it, it is a pull like any other addiction. And uh, people ruin their lives, of course, uh, when they can't stop gambling. And so there's, there's also a big business out there to, uh, to, to reach out you know, and, and cure people of their addiction to gambling like there would be to, you know, addiction to alcohol or, or whatever, drugs or, or whatever. So uh, 
what would you you know what what would you say to someone who you know if they said uh, do do you gamble and you might say no um, what would it how would you answer how would you give a biblical answer to that well uh, I have seven reasons so let's look at these in a few verses with them and and see what what we think I I think it is one of those things where it doesn't mean that somebody who uh, uh, you know, uh, goes fishing with his buddy and says, uh, whoever buy, uh, catches the smallest fish has to buy lunch. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, that, although maybe, you know, maybe we should be consistent all the way down to that. But I'm talking about these things that um, uh, are like this. Number one, okay, uh, the Christian worldview is to work for what you get. That's the way God created man in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, remember that, that Adam was commissioned to work before he fell into sin. <laughs> Working, you know, the, the reason we work for what we get is not a result of sin. Uh, God created us to work and it is what we should do, and we could add to that, living within our means then as God provides ways for us to work and provides uh, ways for us to get income, he also expects us to live within that, even though that may seem unfair uh, compared to what other people are able to make, we shouldn't look at anything as unfair. It's called covetousness, right? And so we're supposed to stay within what God gives us, uh, be happy with that, adjust our life to that, and keep working. Uh, I, I think back when, when we did the first uh, message on art, I, I mentioned this too, that Dante, uh, centuries ago, um, said that, uh, you know, he wrote his, his book on hell, uh, Dante's Inferno, and uh, he had the seven circles of hell that, that people get consigned to deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, the uh, last circle, seventh circle, has art in it. And uh, those who violate against art, meaning, remember, art is what you do with your hands or your brain or your whatever. However you make your living is your art. So you don't have to be an artist painting on canvas. You can be a guy framing a house. You can be a guy making a website. You could be, you know, a nurse taking care of something. What, whatever God has given you to do to make your income and live within that, a violation against that, Dante consigned to the seventh uh, circle of hell. In other words, for gaining a profit without working for it. Stealing, for example, and those kinds of things. So, interesting. Um, I had this quote, too. You might enjoy this. C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, he, died, he died the same day John Kennedy was shot, by the way. Nobody, nobody cared about C.S. Lewis dying that day, but he did. And uh, in one of his writings called God in the Dock, and I... I've, read all of these adult books that Lewis wrote. He said, 
if it is a way in which large sums of money are transferred from person to person without doing any good, then it's a bad thing. And then he said this, if it is carried out on a small scale, I'm not sure that it is bad. I, I don't know much about it because it is about the only vice to which I have no temptation at all, he said. And I think it is uh, a risk to talk about things which are not in my own makeup because I don't understand them. If anyone asks me uh, to play bridge for money, it's a card game. If anybody asks me to play bridge for money, I just say, how much do you hope to win? And when he tells me, I give it to him and say, go away. <laughs> so there you go. You know, you can always do that, I guess. Okay. Um, so the Christian worldview uh, is to work. Uh, we'll come to some verses that. Number two, there's no example in Scripture of a believer gambling. There's no example of doing that. Now, you know, someone might say Christians should never be a soldier and fight in a war. And I disagree, and one of the reasons is that Jesus used that example. Paul used it multiple times for a good purpose. In other words, here's the illustration of living the Christian life, F fighting the, the good fight, uh, enduring hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't use those things as examples if they're bad things. Uh, farming, athlete, athletics, uh, soldiering are examples of that. Well, the Bible never uses, the point is, gambling as some example, nor do we find any believing person or godly person doing it in the scripture uh, and then the Bible being neutral about it. So I think that that's important. Um, there's a verse in Proverbs 12, 11, uh, probably a lot in, in, in Proverbs, you know, if you mark these as you go through. He that tilleth the land shall be satisfied with bread. But he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. In other words, stay home, do your work, and be satisfied with the bread that it yields. Vain people follow other ways to make their living. And Proverbs would be full of verses like that. So that's number two. Number three, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11... Uh, biblical pictures of believers and money are of a contented, steady growth. So biblical pictures that talk about us as believers putting our hand to the plow, working and doing things. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands, as we had commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Statements like that uh, are all through the epistles and in the New Testament. And so again, the biblical picture of a believer is putting their hand to uh, what God has given them and being steady, being content, and Nothing wrong with profit. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with you working and gaining a profit for what you do. Uh, that's okay. Uh, matter of fact, I don't think there's anything wrong with gaining interest. 
but it's your money. You've earned it. And, uh, you know, th this is a legal thing that the banks do for you. Fine. Gain, gain your interest. So that's number three. Biblical pictures show a contented, steady growth in believers. Number four, uh, all biblical allusions to gambling are negative. So where the Bible might allude to something about something like gambling, it's usually in a negative context. For example, uh, when Jesus died on the cross and they cast lots for his garments, uh, you know, here's a bunch of wicked Roman soldiers who strip their uh, uh, victims and then gamble away uh, uh, what they can get for their, you know, uh, for their clothing and cast lots for it. There, there's an interesting verse in uh, Ephesians 4.14, and... Uh, you know, I, I didn't check other translations, and you might not have this very word, but you'll have something like it. In Ephesians 4, 14, be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then it says, and by the slight of men, S-L-E-I-G-H-T. And interesting, uh, I happen to know that that word... Slight is the word cubia, pronounce the Greek word cubia. We get our word cubes from it, or the throwing of the cubes, the dice. And so it's used in a negative sense is my point where Paul is saying, don't turn your life over to pure chance like men throwing the cubes. Uh, don't don't do that and and turn your life over to those kinds of things. Every wind of doctrine, you know, every doctrine that the wind blows in, uh, you latch onto. Don't do that, and don't turn your life over to pure chance by the by the slight of the cubes or the rolling of the cubes. So, my point being that when the Bible does allude to a, a form of gambling, it's, all, it's always in a negative sense like this. It's not in a, in a positive sense, all right? Uh, number five, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, is that the fleshly love of money <laughs> is fed by gambling in a real big way. So, 1 Timothy 6 is a chapter Paul uses to speak about uh, money, both in negative and positive sense here. Uh, in verse 9, uh, they that will be rich, meaning a man that just, man or woman, uh, that that is the number one goal in their life. I need more, I'm going to get more money. I am going to get richer. If I have a million, I need two million. If I have millions, I need billions. I mean, you know, there are people like that, of course. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And the next verse, because for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
and that love for money. Well, if you've seen people gambling or if you've seen people addicted to gambling, there is a love for a little bit more. You know, I, I'm going to have more of this. And so he even says in verse, uh, well, verse 10 goes on, the love of money is the root of all evil. For while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, and so forth. So the love of money, by the way, is in all of us like all sins are, you know, uh, all the sins of the flesh that, that, we could re that we could produce are down inside us in seed form, and if we feed them, they will blossom, and they, they will take over, and that love of money is one of them, and gambling surely pours a lot of water on that fruit of gambling, of course, so we have to be careful of that, all right? Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, if you go back over there, the biblical picture of stewardship dictates against taking chances with our money or someone else's money for that matter. So if we are stewards, the point is, of what God has given us and maybe through our job, or however, and then we throw that out to the winds of doctrine and the slights of men, the cubes of men, then are we being good stewards with what God has placed in our hand? My answer would be no. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you know, two chapters that speak a lot about money, Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered to us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And if you know these two chapters, uh, you know, God uh, blesses us, God provides the seed that we sow, and then he provides the, the fruit that comes from what we grow and what we produce. And so again, the idea of stewardship uh, with what God has given us would be wrong to gamble with that because God's given it to us to use. If we lose it that way, you, you might say, well, what if I win? <laughs> you know, frankly, folks, um, I've never been faced with this situation, so I, I guess I can't say I know what I would do, but I don't think I would. I, I don't. I don't want you to go out and play the lottery at the local QT station and win a million dollars and then tithe, tithe it to the church. That's a risky statement because I've never been faced with it, but I don't think I'd want it. Keep that money to yourself. If that's the way you got it and you, you got it by not being a good steward, didn't do it. I remember one time I was down in Arlington, Texas, preaching for a friend of mine, and he he was an avid golfer. He loved golf, and so uh, it was Saturday or whatever. We were going to go play golf, and so we're on our way, and it's it's hot in Texas, you know. So he's going to stop at a Seven Eleven, and we're going to get a coke and drink and take it with us as we go to the golf course. So uh, he pulls up at the Seven Eleven, and and uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm his guest. We were classmates in college, but we hadn't seen each other often. He's got a nice church, and he's showing me around and all of this, you know, real happy. And, and so he sees a car. He says, oh, I think that's brother so-and-so's car. Okay. And they look through the window of the 7-Eleven. Oh, yeah, there he is in there. I'll introduce you to him. He, he heads up our Awana. He's one of my deacons and so forth. You know where this is going, don't you? And so <laughs> we get out of the car. We walk in 7-Eleven, and the guy just bought a handful of lottery tickets, you know, about this. <laughs> I don't know if the guy preached against it or not, but he was embarrassed that he was with me bragging about his deacon. And uh, as we walk in the door, here the guy is with all of his lottery tickets. Uh, well, whatever. I just thought it was funny, uh, but he was good and embarrassed about it. Okay, so biblical stewardship. And then lastly, um, uh, biblical examples of quick growth, uh, quick money growth, growth uh, accumulation of money, are usually ruinous in nature, where we see someone doing something for quick growth. To, I, I want this money now. Here's a way to get a bunch all of a sudden. Those kind of biblical examples are ruinous. Consider Judas. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver were hard to come by in his day. And so he can do it with one quick act, right? And of course, when he did... It was under conviction about it, and rightfully so, but it was too late then. Or, or Ananias and Sapphira, remember, in Acts chapter 6. Uh, and by the way, you, you know, the, the money that was collected uh, was done in a sense of, number one, you don't have to do it, but if you have land and can afford to sell it, then sell it, and whatever it sells for, you give. So that, that was kind of what they had said they would do. You didn't have to, but uh, if you could, then the agreement was, I'll put my land up for sale, and whatever profit I make on it or whatever it sells for, that's what I'll give. And Ananias and Sapphira did that, but when they had the money in their hand, they decided only to give a part of it, not to give all of it. So they, they'd gone back on their agreement with God. So that, or, uh, you know, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you money if you'll give me the power that you have. Money and used in these ways always has this negative connotation. And, and, and getting rich, the getting rich quick scheme, I guess. And again, not, not that investment is wrong where investment is done properly, legally, uh, and so forth, like gaining interest or like Jesus gave the example of the man who bought the whole barrel of oysters hoping that out of them there would be one pearl of great price. And, you know, all of the pearls he can get out of there, one would more than pay for what he bought. Okay, uh, but that's business. That's like going fishing. I'm going to throw out my net. If I just get a couple, it'll be a bad night, but I hope I get a whole net full. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, so I think you get the point. Um, also had a, an article by George Will. I, it used to be George Will wrote an, a number of books. Most of these books were just compilations of all of his articles over the years. But even, he's, even George Will talked about things that are speculative, 
let me, I got time, let me back up a couple sentences. People who want to delegitimize capitalist societies encourage the belief that much wealth is allocated in speculative, meaning capricious ways. That is, too much goes to people who earn their bread neither by physical nor mental exertion neither by the sweat of their brow nor by the wrinkling of their brows, in social, useful thought. Gambling is debased speculation, a craving for some sudden wealth unconnected with investment that might make society more productive. Government-fostered gambling for huge stakes institutionalizes windfalls and then does recurring injury to society's sense of elemental equities. If you can follow his language, basically when government gets in the business of making their profit off of uh, uh, making gamblers out of people, um, they, they are destroying their people rather than helping their people. And interesting that he might have that. By the way, uh, I missed I missed a quote. Oh, um, I'll read this last one. A man named Arnie Wexler. Arnie Wexler uh, w was the director of the Council on Compulsive Gambling <laughs> in New Jersey. Com uh, you know, again, the comp trying to help compulsive gamblers. And he said, the religious leaders have been oddly silent, perhaps because so many churches and synagogues rely on bingo revenues. <laughs> he says, the biggest things we have to help people are churches and temples and government, and now they're all in the gambling business. So, testimony, in other words. Okay, so... Some thoughts on gambling, and I think, I think we would do well, folks, to leave it alone. Uh, it, it is all around us. It is easy to do. I, I think a lot of times Christian people are involved in just the smallest ways of doing something. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you one other story. When, when um, we lived in Denver, we went down to Old Town, uh, with friends to a restaurant to eat. And so we're at this restaurant and there was a long wait. And so we're wandering around out on the sidewalk, you know, with one of those buzzers in our hands. And there was an antique store, you know. My wife's middle name is Teak. And, and, and so we had to go in there. And so we're in this antique store and they have a one-armed bandit, a slot machine. So this friend of mine says, well, that's interesting, you know, and you could see how it works. You had to put a quarter in. You could see how it works. You put a quarter in and watch it roll around and everything. And I guess people who might want to buy it need to see if it works. So he says, well, this will be fun. He reaches in his pocket, he puts a quarter in, pulls the hand down. Guess what? The quarters come rolling out, and he can't catch them all. <laughs> so he wins. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, and he kept it, <laughs> you know, but, but you know, uh, most of us might, you know, do something in the simplest way like that uh, or do something that we consider harmless. I think that, I think there are just certain things in life that we are well to do as, as Paul said to young Timothy, flee these things. Uh, 
and just leave them alone. Don't participate in them. There'd be less embarrassment, uh, less chance of addiction, less uh, a better testimony for Christ, and uh, we don't need these kinds of things anyway, okay? So that's my soapbox. I've been on it today, and... and Hope it meant something to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word that gives us principles to live by. We live in a, a world with so many vices and so many things pressing at us, our kids and our grandkids and in the world that they will live in. Help us, Father, to be wise uh, and good stewards of what you put in our hands. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.